Okay, it's recording. You know, people say, oh, I, I'm, I'm celebrating my 96th birthday now, and like, people say, what are the challenges in your life? And that kind of thing. And I'm thinking the greatest challenge I've ever had in my life is to think I'm being interviewed. And for my 96 years, maybe to cover, to be covered in five minutes. Well, I'd say that's the biggest challenge I've ever known. I haven't even introduced you yet. <laughs> you see what I mean? You're not, and you're going to take up my time introducing me. <laughs> like, I'm so sorry. It's not fair. Okay, let's just do a quick introduction. I'm Mike Morrison, and I'm interviewing my granny, Jean Morrison, uh, that on the eve of her 96th birthday. We're here in Winnipeg, uh, and we were just sitting around, and you said... Uh, about five minutes ago, you said you wanted your own podcast, and I said, let's do it. So we're doing it. This is your first podcast. <laughs> it's really quite funny, but you can tell the way I'm laughing that in 96 years for people coming up now, the young people, laugh. It's the most wonderful thing you can do, because I have a science background, and I know the scientific approach to laughing, and the thing is... I mean, if you laugh, you get your adrenaline going, your thyroid, your pituitary, it goes up to your head, and your endoforms kick in, which is the nature's stress-releasing hormone. And, I mean, so it doesn't even have to be really, really funny. You can look at yourself in the mirror in the morning and laugh, and your body doesn't know why you're laughing. You're just laughing. And so all the right hormones kick in. So it, is that is that something that you've always known about laughing, or is that something you've learned over the last nine decades? Well, I've known that laughing. I could say from my four or five years old, I found laughing a wonderful thing. It, it connects you with people like nothing else. I started back when I was, uh, and my when I was four and five years old, you went on messages for your mother. Now now we've got this fear built into the society. You can't let your children out of the door unless there's somebody with them. But we did messages, and I went to the butcher store because our neighbor had a dog, and she wanted a quarter of a pound of liver for Buddy, the dog. I went over to the... To <laughs> for go, for to, those listening, my grandmother has the most insane memory of anyone you'll ever meet. And insane is the right adjective a good to use. Word, a good way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, because one of my philosophies of life is you don't have to be crazy, but it helps. <laughs> anyway, I went to the butcher shop, and I asked for a quarter pound of liver, and he said, what kind? And I said, well, dog's liver. So the two butchers really laughed, and, and from then on, Every time I passed the butcher shop, they'd wave to me, and we'd laugh a little bit. So mm -hmm. I learned very early that laughter really is a great thing. Um, so at the beginning of that story, you said, you know, the kids can't do anything without their parents watching them sort of thing. Do you think society is better than it was, say, in your when you were 20? Well... Uh, I, I'm just saying, well, in my 20s, um, too, too much hadn't changed. But I'm just saying, whether I like it or not, we're living in a different society, and the parents are facing different situations. But I, I still feel we had a few people around that were a bit erratic. But somehow, they were just erratic. It, it, we weren't trying to analyze everybody that had, did things differently to try to, to try to put them in psychological... Um, uh, 
categories. Mm-hmm. Sometime I call it now semantic gibberish. Because instead of just saying something right out, we have to get a whole psychological interpretation of something. In the meantime, the person suffering still suffering as we get another research project going to get something, to get a paper out that can be named. Now, what, you see, I'm digressing for my five minutes. You've already lost me. Um, but that, I've, I'm used to that, having known you 36 years. Uh, <laughs> okay, so... in. We have time. There's not. It, just has, it can be more than five minutes. Mm-hmm. But you do uh, have lots of stories to tell mm-hmm. to catch people. So I stay with the laughter. No, no, no. I, I'll, I'll, I'll try. I'll try okay. to guide you a bit. Um, what? Okay, tell people where you were. Where were you born? I was born in Montreal. Okay. In uh, well, in Montreal proper, or well, a, a suburb of Montreal, and I was born in a French Canadian milieu. And that was wonderful because my friends were all French Canadian, mm-hmm. to the point that uh, I was six years old. Everybody had nicknames in those days, and it wasn't going to be a traumatic thing for the rest of their life. And my name in that district was Mujite Carré, which I thought was my nickname, but actually it means goddamn English person, really. <laughs> So I mean, I'm just saying how if you don't know you're being insulted, mm-hmm. it has no, it doesn't have any effect. But I learned to speak French fluently early, and that helped me my whole life in all kinds of ways. Um, and what what sorts of ways? Well, and and uh, I could, I got involved in French language television. I was part of a television show, La Boite à Surprise because I was involved in marionettes with a French-language marionette group named Marionette de Montréal under um, uh, Michel Legendre. And uh, we represented Canada, actually, at a festival in Warsaw. And they came from all over the world. And I'd been doing marionettes on my own and got involved with Michelin's, which were professional. We played, we played with all the symphony orchestras, Montreal Symphony, Quebec, New York, and, and Toronto. And were you and, in Russia as well? Uh, well, I was in Poland. Poland. Yeah. I was in, we stayed there for a month, actually, and saw the international festivals. But that was a French-Canadian group I went with at the height of separatism. So I was part of that, not part of it, but as part of the dialogue. But they kept saying that when something got really a little bit, um, a little bit insulting uh, against the English, I'd say, "But I'm English. Oh, metapo, I'm glad I'm as old. I'm not English like the others." Mm-hmm. But wonderful group of people that I went with. I wouldn't have done any of that if I hadn't spoken French. Uh, we were talking the other day, and you said, you know, it feels like you've had five lifetimes, and that, and that's when you, you're talking about the marionettes that makes makes me think of that because. You could, you know, only talk about the marionettes because it was very impressive and incredible and uh, interesting. Lots of interesting things happen. But oh, that's um, just one of your many lifetimes. Yeah. Well, at that time that I was doing marionettes, I had four children, too. And so I've had a very full life. And um, it's un- like just unbelievable. But before that, when I graduated from McGill... With a, a with a science background, I worked in allergy. As I'm saying this is part of my scientific life, and then then I then I 
got married, moved to Newfoundland to be married because we were going to be married in Montreal. And then uh, my future husband, Jim Morrison, was transferred from the Navy to, to St. John's, Newfoundland. And mm -hmm. when you're young and um, you just think, uh, well, we're, we're going to get married here, might as well be married there. But what I didn't realize, we didn't know there was a war on in Montreal. But once we got to New once I got to St. John's, Newfoundland, they were at war the minute a ship left St. John's Harbor mm -hmm. because the submarines were there waiting for them. So what but, do you mean Montreal didn't know there? Like it didn't feel like there was a war well, happening in no, Montreal? No, not in Montreal. No. I mean, you, there was a few problems, a few ration tickets or something, but not the reality that when that ship left the harbor, there were submarines there prepared to... Uh, to shoot them down, mm -hmm. to, to shoot. But I'm, I'm getting back to the science part. And once I realized I got to Newfoundland, I realized my husband's ship would be gone and I wouldn't know when it was coming back. So I went down to the lab and got a job with the lab in, in St. John's, Newfoundland. And I'd been doing some bacteriology in Montreal with a large hospital. And if I'd stayed there, I'd have been doing the routine stuff forever. I got to Newfoundland, St. John's, and I was it. Mm -hmm. I was the bacteriologist, under a pathologist, of course. And I got all the diseases you can think of. TV, TV, typhoid, diphtheria, syphilis. And I was doing all the tests for the bacteriology. And a lot of disease in Newfoundland at that time. Because it hadn't joined Canada yet. So there was no, no sort of cash payments to... Uh, for the children or the old people, and um, and they're very, very poor or extremely rich. But I got involved with the, with the Newfoundlanders, which was wonderful for me. Mm -hmm. And I I felt part of my war effort was that I, I because I had all the samples from all the outports as well. I was I was examining for syphilis and gonorrhea. So I knew where the prostitutes were that had these diseases. Mm -hmm. And so I could tell the, 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 uh, the head office down there where the boys should not be going. And you, but you were saying the other day the, the, the prostitutes provided, I mean, they provided a service, but there was, it, it was important. It, was, it gave people, it gave the men comfort. Oh, I, I, I believe that. It was shortly after I was doing this job. And fortunately, I realized though when you saw the ships coming in the harbor loaded with ice, they'd just come across the Atlantic being shot at any moment. And think of it, the boys were 18, 19, 20-year-old. I mean, they had not really experienced life, but to come up with all those stresses, and now there are women prepared to take them in their arms, no matter what they're being paid. It was something that I felt was important, very important. Mm -hmm. I often thought I should get a little petition up that after the war they should have had some sort of pension. <laughs> okay, okay, so let's do a little bit of a rapid fire here. Uh, okay. Just some quick questions, um, maybe some life advice. So if you could, let's hypothetically say under a minute, which is impossible for you, I know. Just say what? Say something. I could ask you a question, and then you have to give your advice in, in a minute or less. Okay? Well, uh, let's end the interview now. I, I know. <laughs> this will be the challenge. Okay. Uh, advice for love. 
What advice have you learned over the last 96 years about love? But you'd have to be more specific about love, right? For uh, people, okay. I mean, love as a human being, love? Or, or are you asking me for my sexual interpretations of love? Now, you've got to be a little more specific. I kind of want to go down the sexual interpretations road. <laughs> I don't know if I should, No, though. No, I, 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 I have just one little, I can say one thing. Okay. I belong to the Women's Institute, a marvel, which was part of a, um, well, a women's group. It's over a year, uh, mostly for farmers' circles. But there's a fabulous group of women, and they, we always said a prayer. And I'm not saying how religious I am. I'm a spirituality, but I can't structure it. But the last line of their prayer was, and, O oh Lord God, let us not forget to be kind. And I think that's the basis of all love. Kindness, just be kind. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, I mean, the biological, because I have a science degree and did one of my researches I did as an oral historian was enzymes, the history of endocrinology in Canada. So I can look at it from the endocrinological point of view, and that plays a major part in what you say, talk about love. Um, we have pheromones still in our noses, and you know the animals have pheromones that are highly, highly developed. If you ever have a cat and a dog that's now in heat, you'll find cats and dogs coming around your building and never even knew were in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We still have that, and I do believe that two people get together and you say, why those two? All the people, in, no matter what the relationship is, why did those two people click? And I think it's the pheromones in the nose. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, there is an expression, I do not like you, Dr. Fell. The reason why I cannot tell and the person's done nothing to you. You've just met them, but there's something about them you yeah. just don't like. And I believe we don't put enough emphasis on smell, biological smell. All right. We're way over that one. <laughs> I know. It's just hopeless, isn't it? It's Anytime just, you're, uh, you're, you've been, I don't know, lucky. You're interviewed quite a bit. Like I often can hear you on CBC or the top radio stations. And sometimes I talk to the producers just to sort of give them a heads up. Yeah. And having worked in live TV, I know, you know, your segment, you get four minute segments. And oh, I and with, know. And with you, the two impossible. hour interviews, and it comes up four minutes yeah. on the radio. <laughs> but I don't mind. No. I don't mind. You have to do what's commercial. What advice do you have for people about uh, their jobs and their life? I, I have a great feeling about going with the flow because you may take a job you don't particularly like today. Another of my expressions, you don't stumble on anything sitting down. So you, you go into something like, I'm, I'm not going back to it, but puppets. I, I was doing puppets myself for another reason and I just happened to go to this particular show, spoke to the producer and it opened up that whole door of going to be on radio, going to Poland all co- and actually going to vis- interview Dr. Norman Bethune because of my, this, this business of going to something and a door opens there that you had no idea existed. Go with the flow and tart, but do something you won't like to do. Mm-hmm. And your biological makeup and, and your background will determine a little bit where, that, where the crossroads are going to lead. So some things are predetermined biologically. 
Oh, very much so. I, I mean, I mean, there's no way you're going to. Where I'm going? Never go to train a Chihuahua to to chase all the sheep around the field. You know, like you are born <laughs> with certain uh, DNAs. Yeah. Okay. What about advice for money? Oh, I've got a very strong advice for money. I, I took one course in economics. It's really the only thing I remember. The marginal utility of the dollar. If you have a glass of water, it's worth nothing. If you're in the desert, it's worth a million dollars. So, I, raised as a, with a Scottish father, we always had everything we needed. What we wanted came into another category. And I think wasting, I say wasting money, how are you wasting money? I'm, I'm sort of contradicting myself a little bit because what is it worth to you at that moment will determine where a lot of money should be spent. But building memories with your money is the most important thing. Because at 96, I could go back. You're asking me for things now, and I could repeat them, and I'm laughing because they happened to me. Mm-hmm. And there's one, like... We were doing the butcher shop story, and but then uh, and then we went to the war a little bit, and I was part of a red triangle review, and I went into a chorus line. None of us could were dancers. We had a wonderful choreographer. We did the things, and the men seemed to enjoy it. But one we did was Carmen Miranda's number, the Congo, and we didn't have time to dance with. With our costumes on, mm-hmm. so eight of us went out with our costumes, with the big frilly skirt and the little brassiere top and the big big Miranda hat on. And of course, we got to the Congo, dun 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 dun, and we're at the dun, some of the brassiers came up and our bus came out the bottom. Well, the men in the audience and they're boys, they're they're young, they laugh, you know, rolled in the aisle laughing. You you know what that was? Yep. And you, now we were devastated, right? But think a little bit. They're in terrible conditions. I'm saying in the trenches, on the ocean, in the air, flying, whatever. They're going to remember that. They're going to and laugh. Yeah. You know that's a memory I have because now I just remember how the poor choreographer went crazy because he ended up working for Cher. What was it, Sonny and Cher, mm-hmm. and a few other important as choreographer for them. So we were, we were dancers. He was devastated. People were laughing at his work. And uh, now we go back to love because that's what we were on. What? Oh, no, money. That was we're mon- on we were money. talking about money. On money. And uh, the thing is, a penny earned is a, per- a penny saved is a penny earned. Because you just have to look at some of the wagons going out from all of shopping today. You could eliminate most of that wagon. Mm-hmm. And, now, and now what you earn is not what you earn with taxation and all that sort of thing. Okay. You, so you've traveled all over the world. Yes. Um, where, where is, if you could snap your finger and everyone see what your, your favorite place, what would that place, what would you like I, the world it, to see? And that's... That's so difficult because I went so many places. I mean, every place I went, but I would have to say China mm-hmm. because, I mean, I went there. I just happened to meet Peter Sturzberg at a meeting, and he said he was going with McGill alumni, but he couldn't go because it was canceled. 
but I had to get everything ready in a month, and it's taken them six months to get their visa. And going to China and interviewing Dr. Norman Beth, people that worked with Dr. Norman Bethune. And because China wasn't opened at that time, 1974, and so our bus turned up at the hospital where Dr. Norman Bethune has a hospital, a museum, and a statue where the people still, once a year, um, honor him with a parade and, and flowers. People in Canada don't even know who he is. Anyway, Dr. Norman Bethune. And when the, when the bus came, there were all the little Chinese children dressed with their little pigtails flying and dancing with their hands in the air. And I had my tape recorder with me, of course. And, and I took a tape recording of it. Now, come forward many years. I have the home nurse coming to remove my pressure stockings. Mm -hmm. And she's Chinese. Where are you from, China? No, where are you from? Shi Cha Chung. I said, I've been there. And I told her the story I just told you. She said, I was one of those women. Now, we talk about synchronicities and coincidences. Here's this 47-year-old woman dancing in my apartment <laughs> like the little girls to the music. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I didn't know what the music said, but it was I love Mao and Mao's my friend and I, all that sort of thing. And, of course, she started to cry. And a month later, I got a beautiful wallet from her mother with all Chinese figures on it. But talk about synchronicities. We talk about life. I talk about biochemical. I talk about... Uh, like ions and DNA. How come her DNA and her biological being, what that went through coming from that small, I'm saying small towns, no small towns in China, but uh, commune, from, from that where she, her trip over here to Win Winnipeg and me coming from Montreal in my apartment, mm -hmm. how does that ever happen? How do you explain that? How do you explain it? I, I talk about some. I say I don't. I've. I, I I can't verbalize religion. I just can't. I hate it when I see Allah's head, Buddha's head, Creator's head. There's something we do not understand. That ha everybody, everybody you know has synchronicities that you can't explain mm -hmm. how those that biological being ended up next to me. Um, uh, that would be my... Uh, I loved China. I loved every part of it. Yeah, you have great stories about it. And you, we're, surround, and we're in your apartment, and there's uh, art, lot, beautiful art from China. And it's, you know, it's a really special time for you. Um, what about advice for families, how, about raising families? Do you have any advice? Well, I, I just understand that we have an egg and we have sperms and that makes the little cell that creates a, a, a biological being again. Mm -hmm. And I love this part. I know I shouldn't digress, but I love this part why men will never ask directions because it takes a million sperm to find one egg. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll keep going. I'll keep going. You're asking me about families. And from that... You have a child born, and you can have one, two, three, four, five children. None of them are the same. Like everything theoretically is the same, mm -hmm. because this is 
It's another egg. It's another sperm. But the house in, or home into which they are there are certain changes depending where they're born in the mm -hmm. sequence. But you have a little child is born to you, and you could only go within the perimeters of what biological aspects have been created at that time. So children are all different, and they can't be expected to be perfect. And I love it when people think they're going to have a child and they think they're bringing back seven pounds of sugar or potatoes or something, but they're bringing back a, a creation that will change everything in their lives, everything from then on. And, of course, I hate it the way it is now where you don't have the biological connection mother to child long enough uh, for to take... Uh, I, I, I keep going to other different things, and I can't do that. But the difference between a calf born to a, a, a cow that suckles on the cow, a, a f good farmer knows the difference when he's buying, whether that calf has been with the mother or taken away and the milk collected and then fed in just to the calf. And I believe there's a biological connection, very important, that is denied. And then I t say that we have mothers now called the cuckoo bird syndrome. And the cuckoo bird baits before it has a nest, whereas all the other birds have a nest and then they mate. So they have a place. The cuckoo bird puts their egg in another person's nest. To, to raise, mm -hmm. and the poor bird doesn't know until the bird's born bigger than hers, no. still to be fed. And now the mother puts them in. The the families now say for economic reasons both have to work. Yeah. The child's put into a warehouse, no matter how good that warehouse is. And I feel that now you have children being brought up by strangers, even qualified professional strangers. And but before you know it, the child is a teenager, especially with the social media today and television interviewing them so much. They're not raised in the normal. Um, I say go back to biochemical and biological makeup that all can human everything. You go back to flowers. You could go back to um, the DNA. Go back to DNA. The orangutans. They're 98% the same DNA as us. Mm -hmm. And they laugh. Do you know that? They laugh. They put their hands on either side. They put their hands on either side. And they go, ha, 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 what do we do? We go, ha, 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 ha. Isn't that funny? We're, we're so much a part of nature that all of psychology, because I majored in psychology at university, mm -hmm. I had to find an arts degree to put in. I hated it from the very beginning. I go back to semantic gibberish. They go all around the issue to come up with some complicated sentence that if you've been raised without it, you have just one word to explain something. I'm going to go to BS. You know? Yeah. <laughs> But they've got to, and everybody's got to be blamed for something. Every news, no matter what happens, the next sentence blames somebody. As long as you can blame somebody, you don't have to get involved because it's somebody else's fault. And I think that's a, a weakness. We're talking. We were talking about money or love. That. 
or my best place to visit. What was that? No, what no, was that best, one? Be, best that place was family. You didn't even... oh, no, no, past that, we're in family now. Yeah. And so we, we, I hate when families break up because we're not, none of us are perfect. And we get sort of things happen that break families up, which, which is too bad. And some are justified and better off because it's broken up. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have to go in that direction too. But it, it, it's lovely. I just love it when families get together. And I, I had a group that got together, and I just wanted them to know the important, most important thing to me in life now is that all my children stay friends. Mm-hmm. And friends doesn't mean... Just Fred and oh Lord God, let's not forget to be kind. I'm happy with that. Um, and last, po- last sort of topic like this. I'm curious about loss because at of some- what loss? So like at L O S S L O S S. Yeah. Oh, yes. So at 96, uh, you've lost a lot of people that you've spent lots of your life with. Yeah. So your husband, your family, yeah. your siblings. Yeah. Um, how do you? How do you deal with all of that type of loss? Well, I don't. I don't look at it the way a lot of people do. I, I, I mean, starting now, but I don't believe in celebrating death. I believe in celebrating their life, and I love to. I've 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 been asked to do three eulogies now, and my topic is laughter in the face of death. I think a person can die without pain. Uh, it upsets me if they have to have pain before they die. And I, I certainly believe in the person choosing their time of death at, with with people around them, with the doctors and the lawyers of your I don't mean this spontaneous thing, taking your life. Mm-hmm. but and Because I, I don't believe... I've been lucky to have a wonderful husband, and you can imagine how wonderful he is to have had to adjust to some of the things that I've done in my life yeah. that have all worked out well. Yeah. But Because you, be- weren't, you weren't that wife that stayed... You had four kids, but you weren't that wife that stayed home necessarily, but you still made sure... But I did stay home. Yeah. But you did all these things and you stayed home. I stayed home because, I mean, I, I was an oral historian for 46 years and did many serious interviews because interviewed the... The history of Canadian invention and technology, the history of endocrinology in Canada, the the uh, the um, past president of the Canadian Medical Association. I interviewed do- the doc- uh, the uh, Duke of Norfolk in England. I'm not going into why or anything, but uh, all these things were serious. Things, but I could do my research at home mm-hmm. or go to the university. And of course, I got my master's at seventy. And that was one of the best things in my life. Can you imagine going to university? I don't have to have worry about a date. I don't have to worry whether I have enough money. Yeah. And the piece of paper I'm getting, it's because I, I don't have to have that paper to do what I want to do. And I just had to sit there and listen to the, uh, the pr- uh, professor. And I had to say that was a bit of... Uh, challenge for the professor because sometimes he got off topic. <laughs> so you know what it feels like. So I know what it feels like. <laughs> and one of my professor stories is that I took science and I'm in a class with 250 lawyer uh, engineers, 10 Pete women sitting in the front row when we sat aside in case our virtue was threatened uh, down. And so he walked in and he said, 
you are faced with the ball fact there are ten of you and only three of you will pass. But he walked in and he was bald like a billiard ball. And I burst out laughing, talking about laughter, how it helps. This didn't help. And he turned to the, uh, the ten women and said, there are nine of you and one of you won't pass. And I didn't. The only thing I failed in my whole life, physical chemistry. Oh. <laughs> so laughter again is wonderful. Um, it, you have to laugh. Yeah. And you... And you um, so... <laughs> So for people listening, we've, we've okay, covered you mean the if war. Still we've covered puppeteer. If people still oh, I think listening. they are. Uh, so the war, the puppeteer, psychology, getting your masters. Uh, you sort of touched on it, but you lived on a farm. You raised animals. We had a real farm. A real farm. It's us to the farmers who were real yeah. farmers. And then you also um, you entered politics. Politi- uh, political. We haven't even touched politics, but no. I think it's best that you and I don't talk politics. No. Uh, because we disagree often, um, but I know. But uh, if if I agree with you, we'll both be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and then uh, you also, I mean, you talk about laughter a lot. But you entered the Winnipeg Comedy Festival a few years ago, and you made it basically to the finals. Yeah. Um, what was that experience like? Well, I mean, I thought it was oh, here. We go quickly, quickly. I, I was only doing the first round to get a video, maybe of some of the funny things, and it turned out uh, uh, I, I got to the ten at the and then and and then to the finals. And of course, some funny things happened about that because a, a, a man. I mean, that that was fun for me because uh, again, I, I emphasized the funny things I did in my life, and each at each level, I did something funny that happened. But the funny, funny thing was a man came over to me who was from with the organizer of the Winnipeg Gone Wacky, and he was from Las Vegas, and uh, you know now I'm eighty nine, and would I like? Could do you think I could get a twenty-minute thing? Because he knew I, he could take me to Las Vegas and set me up with some something. Of course, I said I'm laughing. I laughed when he said, "Because I know you're not after my body, so I can't believe that you're serious about this." So can you imagine an eighty-nine tripping around? <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, but funny, like life can be funny. And if somebody does something, this is important to me too. If something, somebody does something wrong to you, and you're stewing about it and stewing about it, forget it because you're you now have told your body you're unhappy, and all the good juices are bad juices, which are even working on your body like crazy. Mm-hmm. You've neutralized all the your body's help to reduce stress. And the person who's hurt you doesn't give a damn. He haven't, probably isn't even giving you another thought. And so you, you are just destroying your own uh, makeup, and he doesn't care. So get over it. Mm-hmm. And, and if I have a poem, but it's too long, is it? No, go ahead. When things go wrong, and they usually will. When the road ahead is all uphill. When your funds are low and your debt's high, you like to smile, but you can only cry. When you really feel it's time to quit, don't come to me because I don't give a shit. (laughs) That was like a nursery rhyme in our house growing up. 
thanks to you. <laughs> oh, 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 you remembered it. You yeah. remembered it. Um, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get ready to wrap up, though. But you were very political. You, you helped lots of... I was uh, campaign chairman. For what, what party? Well, progressive conservative. In a riding where the where conservatives had never run, they only ran, they only won once, and that was since Confederation, because the liberals were fighting. Uh, <laughs> but so, I did get, I did get enough of the vote, so we got our money back. Oh, well, there you go, fifteen percent. Um, but um, what's happening in the world now? It seems this. Both sides are sort of setting up a permanent camp, and it seems harder both here in Canada and the states to find a common ground. It's frightening. It's frightening. So, how how what's your advice? How do we fix it? Um, I, I think I think there has to be more support for the whistleblowers because there's never ever been any support. The big thing, if you've got if you've got a crusade that you want, you better keep looking. If you're the leader, you better keep looking back to see the crowds quite there, still following you, because people have are so tied up with with um, I'm saying personal problems or complications. We're bombarded with the news, and I even submitted something to the Davis Report on the news that is true but not truthful. And that's the danger we have today, because now I'm old enough to know things that are ha- did happen. I was there when they were happening. They're reporting, and what they're saying is true, but it is not truthful. And if you added the extra piece, and you're asking me for my advice for people today, I honestly can't, un- I really don't know where they're going to get that truthful thing. And the fact that they're the reporters that went out and investigated, there's no money for them anymore, and you're getting people talking. Go back to my psychology just for a second. I hated it because people in the room took up, the lecture took up people in the room talking about something. They didn't know any more than I knew, and the professor would never come to a conclusion after the thing. The people that are experts... The, these point people come on TV with points, PowerPoints or whatever it is. They often don't know any more about the subject than the, than the people listening. But you listen. The people are now convinced they are saying something and they have a right to say it. I'm so frightened of the lack of the the um, the lack of opinions that have been tested over the. Over a few years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, all right. So we're going to wrap this podcast up, um, but we're not going to wrap you up. You're still around for a few more years, I think. <laughs> and, and don't make it plastic wrapping because that's not biodegradable, and I will be. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Great. Any last any last words to celebrate your 96th birthday? I just feel absolutely blessed. And and, uh, and it, I say laughter in the face of death, and that's the way I want to. That's, I you know the, the joke. Um, I could have died laughing. I hope I do. No, I do. It's been a wonderful life. I agree. Absolutely wonderful. I'm honored to have shared some of it with you. Oh, and and of course you know how I feel about Michael. Uh-oh. He's, he's been an absolute joy. 
and I remember when he was born, and I remember all the parts of his life, and his his acting career began when he was ten years old. And I've got a lot of funny stories about that. That's a whole I'm different not, I'm podcast. Not allowed. That's a whole other episode. <laughs> I know, but he's he's a gem. He's a gem. Well, thank you, Granny. The egg and the sperm did a okay. good job. Oh, God. <laughs> Now laugh, uh, laugh, and sigh. Laugh, all, laugh. All right, Granny. Well, happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Love you lots. Love you. Oh. <laughs> I love. What do we say? We say I, I love you. You see, I I don't. I hate that expression. Love you. It's like shut up. <laughs> so uh, Michael and I have developed this thing, and I say I adore you, and I, I mean, say I window you. Yeah, yeah, I window <laughs> you. You can see the level of the intellectual uh, connection we have. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, Granny. Happy birthday. And, and I have to say, this is a wonderful birthday because I'm sharing it with Richard Ison. And and who is Michael's friend and p- partner? <laughs> there so, you go. And so, boyfriend. Boyfriend. There you go. Boyfriend. And he's sitting right beside and us. And we we started with love. There's all kinds of love, and every single one I think is precious. If you can share life with with someone that will share your your um, your acceptance of life. Yeah. Wow, that's very and the joys of life. That's very sweet of you, Granny. We love you, too. All right, bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Happy birthday, Granny. It's, it's good five minutes, right? Uh, 45 <laughs> minutes. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs>